Paramhansa Yogananda, A Biography, by Swami Kriyananda, Talk 10, by Asha Praver, April 24, 2012, Copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Master, Paramhansa Yogananda, Saints of all religions, humbly we bow to you all. Help us to lift our, lift our consciousness into thy infinite presence that we may receive your guiding love, your inspiring joy, and be your instruments in all that we do. Oh, peace. Amen. Listen to my heart song.
Greetings all. Yes, I will sit, if you all don't mind. There's nobody behind you, Marilyn, is there? No? Okay. I'm going to stay seated, so if you want to arrange yourselves, I have the energy to stand, but I have the preference for sitting. (laughs) So there we have it. Um, Yes, we had a lovely time away. Thank you all for indulging me by not objecting when I canceled the class. I have a cavalier attitude about canceling Tuesday night classes, I must confess, because I always do them. So when I can't, I just can't. And there you have it. Okay, we have one more break uh, the week before Swami's birthday weekend. Whatever that is, like the 12th or the 13th or something, whatever that is in May. So about three weeks from now, I'm going to, I always help Nancy Mayer make the fundraising dinner for Crystal Clarity. It's become a tradition. So it's on Thursday night, so I have to go up a little early to help her. All right. Any questions or comments or thoughts about anything at all, related or unrelated? And yes, we had a lovely vacation. We did nothing. We have absolutely nothing to say about it. Nothing. (laughs) We just did nothing. It was fabulous. I observed the working of the subconscious mind when we drove in uh, uh, Amit picked us up from the airport. David and I are in the car together, and I see his car parked in the carport, and I think, oh, David is home. You know, it's just like... <laughs> yeah, heaven is so strange. Ananda Prem said, Ananda Prem said she saw a little red Honda going down the street, and she thought, oh, there goes Ananda Prem, because that was a car she had for a long time. <laughs> and I first met David when he first came into my life at a time when I was not free to, he was not free, nor was I to uh, court, but I was always very happy to see him. And he drove this little orange car. Orange is the word I remembered. I can't imagine David buying an orange car. So it must have been sort of a reddish coral color. But that car became so profoundly associated in my mind with him that for years afterwards, you know, after we were long since married, every time I'd see one of those little cars, oh, I get really happy, you know. (laughs) I mean, if we can use that for good, imagine how, how yeah, but imagine if we could harness all that, just completely unconscious energy, what a benefit it would be. That's why he tells us to chant, Master does. Okay, I believe we're on 21. He had keen insight into human nature, am I correct in that? I think the last one we did, it was about forgiveness. Does anybody remember keen insight into human nature? I always promised to write it down, this time I made marks. Okay, number 21. He had keen insight into human nature, for even though a master no longer has any delusions, 
to the point even of wondering how anyone could be so blinded by them. He well remembers all the incarnations he himself suffered as he went through those same delusions himself. Yogananda offered the above explanation, indeed, for the reason why Jesus would have had, first, to transcend delusion delusion in a former life, to be able to help others in this one. No human being, even a master, is ever directly a son of God. I have read that claim on the part of disciples of other paths besides the Christian. Yogananda's answer to that was, what would be the point? It is the destiny of every soul to merge back into oneness with God. But if a miraculously produced direct incarnation of God were to descend on earth, what encouragement would that give to human beings to go and do likewise? That's such an, isn't that interesting? Swami's doing his usual pack, you know, a lifetime of teaching into a paragraph or two. I am remembering this, because Swamiji often talks about, you know, um, he says that when he was born into this lifetime, he says, he still had a kind of romantic illusion about the feminine. He thought that in some way women were the repository of a finer, greater kind of energy. And um, going through the Bertolucci lawsuit in which women, you know, attacked him with a viciousness that could hardly be imagined, nicely dissolved any lingering uh, thoughts he might have had of that. And in fact, as he had said to us once, I remember vividly, we were sitting at a dinner table and everybody at the table was a married couple. It was a whole group around the table and we were all couples. And he looked at us and he said, I don't mean to be rude, but once the illusion is shattered, you cannot imagine how you could ever have ever been captured by it. And he was just sort of, you know, just this idea of the necessity for a mate, of male-female energy, of just everything about it. He said, it's so gripping when you're in it. He said, but once you're outside of it, it's, he just said the same thing. You just cannot imagine how it ever had a grip on you. I mean, he says, he has said it, and he said it repeatedly with such passion, you know, about everything, really but particularly about that one because it's such a strong delusion for everyone. We sort of at the table laughed and said, we don't mind, sir. You can speak frankly in this company, you know, because many of us, even though still captured in it far more than he is, also you recognize at a certain point that your mind is blinded by forces that you don't know where they're coming from. Just like I was talking about, you get little glimpses of it every once in a while. Just like seeing that David's car and then making all these associations in my mind with which were patently preposterous. But there's a kind of just leaning of the mind, a subconscious mind in a certain direction and it just doesn't take anything to activate it. Master um, was very firm about avoiding all alcoholic beverages. He said, don't even take a sip, he said, in your life. He said, you know, don't, give, don't, let, don't let your children try it. Don't even take a sip. He said, you have no, no idea what kind of karma you might activate. He said, if you know, you know, you could have had a lifetime of alcoholism and you just take one sip and you'll just be right back where you were. You know, it's not, it's not like we know what forces are at play within us. It, it's just, it, I mean, I'm sure all of us know, from, especially from our youth, 
you know, when we were just being compelled by forces that we didn't, that nobody in our whole universe gave us the slightest clue about. And we were just being compelled by all these desires of all kinds, you know, not just for sexuality and for romance and, you know, a perfect love companion or money or fame or whatever it might be. It's just all of that's just moving us all the time. And we're so blinded by it that we have no idea even that we're blinded. I saw a picture in the paper of a movie star once. I have no idea even who it was. And the photograph just struck me at the time. She was dressed in a, a leopard print of some kind. And she looked exactly like a predatory animal. <laughs> I mean, she, she really did. Her whole consciousness was, was predatory. And she was trying to be famous. She was trying to be sexy. She was trying to be, you know, egoic, have all these egoically based successes. And I just looked at her and I thought, my goodness, woman, how many incarnations have you been working on this? Because you could just feel that there was a tremendous amount of focused energy in a certain direction. So Amiji said once he was, he, for some reason, this incident took place on an ocean liner, and I don't have any idea what the context was. But there was a woman who was a very well-known model. And for some reason, Swami, you know, his, his finger touched her. I think her necklace was something like that. She turned and asked him to fix her necklace. When his finger touched her skin, he said this extraordinary... Um, animal magnetism, feminine animal magnetism. He didn't even call it sex. It was just like this magnetism of being a female came out of her. And of course, that's why she's successful as a model because she can stand in front of a camera and project something that is palpable to people even if they don't know what they're looking at. You know, and, and in all these different ways, lifetime after lifetime, we just get drawn into these um, worlds and we just act them out. You know, I've a, I have a, a, a game that I play with myself, and it, it's the best I can do right now. You know, I'm so much different, especially since I passed the age of 60, but I'm so much different than I was in my 20s and my 30s in my understanding of so many things. I mean, by the grace of God, this lifetime, I believe, has served me well I don't think it's only that I'm older, although this little tiny fear is in my heart, you know, that a lot of things that don't look so attractive to me will look attractive to me again, you know, if, if and I feel that the real truth of it is when, I have to take another body and have to start over as one of those helpless little children. Just, there was this little girl, we were coming back yesterday, um, we took a shuttle bus from the resort, which was about 45 minutes from the airport. And, you know, we were piled in with all the other tourists. And in this particular place, which was almost all Americans, um, there, were, there were a number of multi-generational groups there. You know, uh, usually the grandparents would have the apartment and they'd invite their children and their grandchildren. And so there was a grandpa with this darling little girl on his lap. She was about, you know, two feet tall at the most and not talking, but just barely and she was hold, sitting on her grandfather's lap. She was right across from us. And she was very, very sleepy. And, you know, she was just beginning, like little children do, just to totally fall asleep right where she was. And you saw her. She was a beautiful child. Her little eyes getting really heavy and sort of falling over. And so her grandfather tried to readjust her better, which woke her up just enough. And you could see her. Her eyes, she could barely hold her eyes up. She had no consciousness. And still, she was pointing and trying to reach for things, you know, <laughs> 
It's like even absolutely exhausted, she was still going to just go out into the world and try to engage. I mean, it was um, appalling, frightening. I mean, of course, it's her job. She's trying to figure out what the heck is going on around her. But nonetheless, it was still just like, just pushing, pushing, pushing with the outward moving senses to engage in the outer world, to, to grab it, to hold it, to buy it, to touch it, to own it, to define yourself by it. And uh, I was saying, I play a little game with myself, and you know, many things that I'm no longer attracted to that held me more, or fears that I had that were much more dominant in my life earlier, just all the little delusions, every one that I can think of, I try with as much willpower and clarity as I can, not merely to enjoy the relative freedom I have from things that used to hold me very strongly, but to, to impress upon every um, part of myself that I am, I am not attracted and I will never be attracted. And not with a sense of, of perversity, but just with a sense of clarity that no matter how it seems, I know something on the other side of it and I don't want to forget it. I mean, in truth, you know, I was born with a tremendous degree of vairagya, of, of disinclination for this world. And I really never did anything until I found Ananda. I was always just standing on the edge wondering what the heck was going on. You know, I just could never quite figure out, I could never figure out how people made friends. I couldn't understand what they were talking about. I didn't understand how people were at ease in this world. It just all seemed so weird to me. I was adept enough and had enough, you know, capacity to move through the world that I didn't really appear as odd as I felt inside. I could play the game sufficiently. But I was blessed with a lot of that. In fact, David and I, when we were there in that resort, because, you know, I've been at Ananda. I met Swami when I was 22. And I really dropped out of everyday life when I was, I started dropping out when I was 15. You know, sort of became an early beatnik. And then a hippie. And, you know, then I just... But I, and I started on the spiritual path when I was 18. So I pulled out of everything at a pretty young age. And by the grace of God, I've never been in it. I mean, I recognize what an unusual life I've had. I went to Ananda when I was 24, and that's it. You know, I've been part of it, and that's the only life I've ever known. Um, so when I'm in a place, and, and I live among all of you all the time. You know, this is my home job in church. You know, it's it's really unusual, and thank God for it. And even my birth family, I, I my sister and I are close, and I, I'm very fond of my brother, although I seldom see him. But, you know, even my birth family was a very light touch. You know, just, and my sister's a Kriyabon, so she's my birth and my spiritual family. Um, but uh, what I was going to say is, there we are in this resort, and, you know, we're having, we're, we're, everybody's there for a week like us. And so, you know, by the swimming pool, and we, we, st- we stayed pretty much to ourselves. But, you know, we we're just exposed on an everyday basis to a si- side of life and people's consciousness that we're just not used to. You know, early, starting early, and you know, everybody's on vacation, which fundamentally means the beer comes out really early. And, you know, and they're just, you know, a little bit soused for an enormous amount of the day, which my father, my family was complete teetotalers. I didn't even grow up with it. When I was 35 or 40, I went home and my father 
had developed the habit of having one beer when we went to a Mexican restaurant, and I was just shocked. I just had never seen him. You know, it was just like unbelievable to me. I'd never even seen it. But just being with all those people and just hearing conversation and living the life, I said to David, you know, we, we live in such a rarefied atmosphere. We are not even on the same planet as any of these people. We've just never, and then David said, we've never been. And that's when I realized, you know, in fact, I've never been. I've never been on the same planet. We really did choose. We came from some other astral, astral sphere. I, I include all of you in this. We came from another astral sphere, and even if some of you have come later, have had to fight your way harder to get here, meaning that your upbringings may have been rockier than what I was fortunate enough to come through. We do not live on the same planet. And we find um, the world around us mostly incomprehensible. You know, I've mentioned to you many times how, how embarrassed I am when people eat meat in public places. I, I'm embarrassed for them. You know, I just think, you know, maybe in the privacy of their own home, but out here in public... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, welcome to my mind. And then I, I had a new one sitting at the resort. They were feeding it to their children. <laughs> and I almost walked over and said, don't, don't. <laughs> That's a dead animal. Don't give it to your child. But, you know, part of me, that was when I said, you know, we, just, we don't live in the same planet here. Because we have been fortunate enough to have lived enough incarnations with enough awareness and enough grace from God. And I say that not for spiritual pride, but for us to just really understand what we have and to build upon it. And to build upon it with, with great determination. Don't just take this for granted. That's why I'm saying I, I reflect upon things that, you know, that I still think about that still attract me. And just sort of, I try to just look at them very, very dispassionately. You don't want to build complexes. You don't want to be born in such a way that your right behavior is actually based on fear and guilt because fear and guilt is not the same as freedom. What you really want is simply not to be attracted, that you just look at it and it's just not interesting to you. You know, I love the story of Therese Neumann, who Master said was Mary Magdalene in a previous lifetime and the rumor of her, the tradition of her is that she was a courtesan and was a very beautiful woman and used her beauty to attract men and lived off of that. And Master said Therese Neumann was her reincarnated, which is why she had such a close attunement with the crucifixion of Christ because she really was there, took his body you know, off the cross and so on. Swamiji said she had an absolute horror of men. Absolutely, not, not horror, but that she didn't have the slightest interest in men. And when they came courting, as they put it, she chased them off her father's farm with a pitchfork. I mean, that was just her attitude, which is, I am not interested. She said, then Swami even said, she didn't even like little naked baby Jesus. <laughs> she just had no interest in the male of any type. You know, it was just finished for her. But I actually try to imagine what that would feel like. That even for someone to come and, and, you know, be interested in you, instead of all the normal responses of how flattered you are that someone's interested and how nice it is to be attractive or to be a man, to be handsome and have her be interested in me. You know, everyone just runs those stories as if they were good stories. What if they were not bad stories, but simply of no interest? That the ego aggrandizement is not interesting 
that the um, physical imperatives are not attractive, that the um, sort of belief that I have to have someone in my life is just a delusion to you. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, it may not seem wonderful to everyone because some of us, you know, still have longings that we can't just wish away. But if we want to at all, if you feel inclined at all, at least try. At least just imagine what it might feel like if. So that even if it's not yet your karmic destiny, nonetheless you can be at peace even with it as an idea. You can admire it as an idea. And you can imagine the freedom that that would bring. Because what we're really talking about is simply freedom. When I think about my life in the future, you know, I've been married twice in this lifetime, once very early and not for very long, and then a 10-year interlude, and then you know, God sent David into my life, which has been, of course, the right partnership. And it's been a very um, enjoyable partnership. And I, I dare say, I think we've, we've both done more for Master than we might have been able to do alone. Who, who can say? It was destiny, and here we are. But I married out of compulsion both times. That's the only thing I can say. God's will or not, it was not a free choice on my part. There was a tremendous amount of desire in both situations. I don't mind being married again. I don't have you know, a fundamental thought that I can or can't be, that it's right or wrong. But I don't want to do anything from compulsion again. I would like to be able to feel calmly and comfortably. Well, if this is what's trying to happen, then I'm happy to go along with it. You know, Sister Gyana Mata got married. Almost all of Master's most advanced disciples and two of our own gurus were married. So it's not like there is this fundamental one way or another. And the original autobiography of a yogi says, you know, the path of the householder uh, providing that the devotee maintains a mental detachment is actually the higher path, meaning that to just accept what God gives you. Um, uh, what's his name now? The, the, the Swami, the Lahiri Mahashaya. Trilanga Swami's comment about Lahiri Mahashaya, you know, he's a kitten in the mouth of Divine Mother who just goes wherever she places him. And his renunciation is greater than mine. I had to renounce even my loincloth, he said, in order to have what he has just automatically. So what we're not trying to talk about, you know, um, making ourselves negative. We're just wanting to make ourselves disinterested. Oh, you know, all that I'm really interested in this world is, is God's will, and nothing else is really going to define me except harmony with that inner reality. And then you have to realize, and I, I, you know, when I read this some time ago, I've been thinking about this so often, the masters have actually lived through it. That their victory is not automatic. Their victory is exactly the same battle that we've fought. I mean, every time, you know, we eat three extra cookies because we don't have the willpower to just leave them in the box or, or you know, become angry about something when we know that we shouldn't be, um, say something to someone that would be nicer that, if we, that we didn't say, fail to follow through on some positive potential that we could have done but we just were, didn't have the willpower or the energy to make it happen. The exact vibration of positive and negative that you are, have in your spine at that moment that makes you do that, Master himself at one time stood in that balance point of delusion and freedom and transcended it. 
It's just, it's just an astonishing thought. When we pray to Master, we have to... Um, what that thought does is that gives us an absolutely shame-free, guilt-free freedom in our relationship to him. He's not going to be shocked. You know, he's not going to be just like unwilling to come to our level. He's not going to be appalled by anything we do. Um, he just is, is conscious of what the flow of energies are like and what it's like to be us. We are children to him. There's no question about that. You know, just as we look at little children and just, I was watching this little girl just out my window today and, and Swamiji often uses little children as a, uh, an exa- a simplified example of the way the energy flows in the spine. And this little girl was excited about something and the way she expressed it was that every single part of her was twitching. You know, just flailing and twitching. She was excited about something in her hands and her arms and her legs and she was jumping up and down. It was, it was all positive, but it was just, her body was just going to do all these things and... I know that's what we must look like to the masters, with all due respect, (laughs) flailing and twitching, you know, just getting so excited about this little ego gratifying something or another and this little, you know, thought here. And we just, it just comes out of us and we just look, must look silly. But at the same time, as we've talked about masters' other qualities, he's deeply respectful, just deeply respectful, even of people who are profoundly ignorant. Because he's actually been there. He's actually been there. And he really knows that we can't be anything but what we are. And that's the, it's the, um, it's this delicate balance. I was talking about this, I think, the last time I spoke on Sunday. This incredibly delicate balance between being so completely comfortable in the reality that we're in, that we are not the slightest bit ashamed of putting our failures before God. That was what it was. It was the Gita verse, if all else fails, if even in this thy faint heart fails thee, bring me thy failure. Being so completely at ease with that and at the same time recognizing how fleeting all those failures are and where we really belong somewhere else. You know, someone, um, one of the letters, the Ask Asha letters I've, I've received this question only verbally so far. I've, I've been try- I started trying to answer it, but I got lost. The question was, what does it mean to face your fears? You know, and how do you go about doing it? And I, I wandered around in various, you know, labyrinthine byways that didn't take me anywhere. I'm still going to talk about it a little bit in the hope that it will clarify it. But, um, you know, the biggest, our fears are not just I'm afraid of, you know, people say things like I'm afraid of failure or so I'm like this. The, mo- the biggest fear we have, I think, is just to face the reality of our own limitations. We're so afraid to just recognize, you know, that, well, I loved it when a friend of mine, she was having a very difficult time with this man in the community. This was 25 or 30 years ago. So he was a hard personality to deal with and she was very annoyed by his personality and wrote to Swamiji about all the trouble he was causing and causing her. And Swami wrote back. He says, he just wants to be your friend. Just love him. And she said, sir, I just don't want to be that good. <laughs> I don't want to be his friend and I don't want to love him. <laughs> and it was a very honest answer. And, you know, she, she presented it humorously, really. It wasn't like she was really justifying herself 
Well, it was more like, oh, rats, that's the answer, huh? I'm going to have to become that large-hearted. I just am not ready to become that large-hearted. You know, what we're afraid of is that we actually are going to have to become free. <laughs> and, what we, and, and to become free, that means we have to give up the comfort of all of these endless justifications for not being free. Does that make sense? Yeah. And in that context, I mean, you know, over years, certain, certain stories just stay in your mind, certain facts. Everybody of us work from different karmic trajectories. You know, I've, I work from a very uh, practical, common sense trajectory. I, just speaking of these questions that I get, I've, uh, in, in Adaya in India, Adaya and Keshava have been enjoying the letters, and so now they're forwarding them out into um, more people in India. So I've already started getting a couple of, with all due respect, what I call typically Indian questions because Indians are philosophically minded and sort of wander around in theoretical ideas. Now, what was I going to say about that? Oh, yes. And just sort of enjoy that kind of, what I would call intellectual conversation about ideas, which actually, as steeped as I am in these teachings, I don't enjoy at all. I don't really like, how does the soul you know, escape from thus and so. I don't like questions that don't have a grounding in someone's actual experience. You know, it's not, it's not that I don't like them, but I don't enjoy them as much. You know, my, my spiritual life has come out of the desire to escape suffering and to be happy. It's not come out of any great fascination with anything. It's just come out of such a sort of, you know, in-my-face kind of reality. When I, gave, when I gave that Sunday talk about Anand from Assisi, his, he, when he gave that whole talk about his fascination with the atom, and I had to admit I had never thought about the atom. I never considered the atom to have anything to do with my life. Anand was extremely convincing, and I convinced myself in my own Sunday service, and by the end I was actually interested in the atom. <laughs> but it, it just like, you know, I just don't wake up in the morning with thoughts about the atom. You know, my thoughts are about you know, how to be happy this day. So just, um, let's see, I had a point on that. Let me see if I can remember what it was. Yeah, so my, so, um, I knew I've lost the thread a little bit, but when, when I read about the fact that Master lived through what we're living through, that seems more relevant to me than almost anything else. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Being on the path and having been part of the same community for such a long time, you know, a lot of people come and go. That, one of my favorite chants is, devotees will come, devotees will go, but I will be thine always. I was uh, uh, deeply distressed when I read this book um, to, to realize how long Reverend Bernard was with Master. From the path, you know, Reverend Bernard was the person who welcomed Swamiji and was his friend and taught him a lot. And then during the course of the time that Swamiji was there, Bernard fell out of tune and left. But I never gathered from the path that he had come in 1930. So, you know, that was like almost 20 years. And, you know, just somehow, oh! and then Swamiji mentions in this book, and he mentions it in the path, that in the last, actually just months before Bernard died, Swami saw him again. At, he, he, there was a, he, Norman Paulson, who'd also been his friend at Mount Washington, Norman Paulson left and started a community in Santa Barbara, and Bernard eventually came and lived with Norman. 
And in the late 70s, Swamiji went and visited them. There's a picture of Norman Paulson holding Swami's hand on one hand and Bernard's hand on the other. Norman is a huge man and Bernard is small and Swami's not that large. It's a really beautiful photograph. I just saw it not too long ago. But, uh, well, sort of. Swamiji said he, when he writes, when I saw him again, I did my best to try to awaken his loyalty to Master again because I think he'd become disenchanted. Now, the end of all of that, which is where I was going with it, is that many people come and go. And even people, you know, over the course of many years, even people that you can't imagine would ever waver, do waver. And you can never take it for granted. That's why Swamiji says, I mean, Master says, you, you just don't mess around with delusion. You don't think, well, you know, now that I've been on the path a, a long time, I don't really need to go to Sunday service anymore. And it, it always starts like that. It almost always starts that you separate yourself from the group magnetism on the basis of when I was new, I really enjoyed it, but now not so much anymore. And, you know, it, it used to be a kind of joke among colony leaders that the worst thing that can happen to your community is you get a lot of midlife devotees in it. You know? People who are no longer enthusiastic, but, ha- you know, but are, just, are just basically losing their vocation, which is a common thing that happens in convents. One of the reasons Swamiji organized Ananda along independent economic lines is he never wanted it to become a place where people got stuck because they had no money and no idea of how to earn money and therefore they couldn't leave because there's nothing worse than a monastic setting in which people have lost their vocation. And in fact, even you know, in the Catholic churches where they've been doing this for a really long time, they often try to isolate the new people from many of the older members. Doesn't that sound horrible? Because too many of the older members are no longer inspired and they know that it'll spoil the enthusiasm of the younger ones. I mean, it just breaks your heart, doesn't it? Yeah, they figured out a better system than that one, but that's a, that's a practical one. But what that's about is that, it, and this is where I, I kept trying to go, Swamiji said that what you have to face is yourself. And at a certain point, people lose courage or lose interest. And so they will say, well, the, that when the, these are always the words. I don't feel the same inspiration here that I used to feel. And then often, then you'll start over on another path. I remember this journalist asked, told Swamiji, he was a Gemini, he said he was very Gemini. He said, every time I start in, you know, a new line of study, I'm so excited and I learn everything and I master the techniques and then in a couple of years I seem to lose interest so I, I find my inspiration by going to another path. And Swamiji's response was, yes, he says, going in circles gives you a certain sense of accomplishment. The bigger the circle, the greater the sense of accomplishment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. You just have the sense of this big journey, but you just end up right back where you were because there's a certain point where you really have to do hand-to-hand combat with your misunderstandings, and God's grace will help you, but at a certain point it has to be done. And in the light of Master's presence, as Swamiji described it, people saw themselves more clearly than they wanted to see them. And it was just more than they wanted to do. That's where the fear the fear that you have to face comes in. The fear that you have to face comes in is the, just the very comfortable realization, wow, I'm not a master yet. 
What a surprise. <laughs> you know, but it, you can see how funny it can be, but it, it insinuates itself into your consciousness in a way that is anything but humorous. You know, because there you are, just being what you are. But this is where this is so important. Jesus himself, and, and you know, they, whoever those um, prelates were who took out of the Bible reincarnation and Jesus doing sadhana in India and having his own masters and learning... Everybody took that out. They just absolutely destroyed. They eviscerated Christianity in the name of trying to make Jesus, you know, praise Jesus by making him unique. No context, absolutely no context. He just popped out of somewhere as the son of God, was dropped in among us, and then just sucked back up, and that was it. And all the rest of us, you know, just hope that he finds us worthy. And that's that. I mean, it's just an impossible teaching. Absolutely impossible. But it's fortunately completely false. You know, what you're looking at is the, real, is the inevitable result of your own efforts. And what you're looking at is someone who not merely has compassion for you, but absolutely knows. You know, he just walked where you walked. Just as simple as that when we would take these pilgrimage trips to India, which we did over you know, 20 years, a dozen or so times, we took the same route pretty much every time. And you know, we just got extremely familiar with it. Everybody had their own little parts. We knew just where to sit. We knew what the pitfalls were. We, we knew the vendors who were the most annoying. We knew the ones that were going to be honest. I always knew where all the bathrooms were everywhere. <laughs> you know, that was my particular responsibility. We just knew everything. And so there was a big, a big group of people with us, often who were quite unsure, Americans, who had, almost always Americans, who had, for the most part, never been to India, for the most part, never been to any, what we call developing nation, you know, just never been out of the comfort zone of, of this country. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of anxiety about a zillion things. Understandable. I mean, I myself have never traveled on my own in India. I've always traveled in some nice collective group. I just, I just kind of wander along, and everybody else takes care of everything for me. Um, but we knew that trip. We knew that trip so well that we could we could just make it work for everyone. And we knew when they would freak out and why they would freak out, and we'd sort of comfort them through it, you know. And we were just so at ease with it because we'd done it so many times, you know. It's an experience guide. It's a simple, very simple word for it. Master and the others, they're experienced guides. It's a trip they've taken. And so when we're nervous about it, we don't have to be embarrassed. We just have to say, excuse me, sir, what did you do when you were here? How did you get through this? Or, you know, as Swamiji says, if you're going to do something that isn't exactly what you ought to do, just take Master with you. Because at least then you'll do it in good company. It's a very strange thought to get your mind around. But what you're really saying is, okay, sir, you know, we're just, this is something I don't understand yet. And even though I can theoretically speak of, you know, the fact that I should not be attracted or I need to renounce, this is not a fact in my mind. This is an experience I seem to need to have. And so just keep me company so that I can have the benefit you know, of your wisdom and your perspective, or at least your friendship. I mean, how many times have you ever had to accompany a friend somewhere where you didn't really want to go, but they wanted to go, you know? And you just go with them because why not? They really want to go to this nightclub maybe, or 
They want to go shopping in this particular place. They want to take a trip to somewhere. It's not a place you particularly want to go, but you'll go out of friendship just to keep them company. You know, Master feels the same way about us. It's no great hardship. You do it out of friendship, and you kind of go along with them. I mean, people take their kids to places they wouldn't be caught dead in, but they just have to go. I mean, I remember a friend of mine, a, a woman here, a child was on a soccer team, and weekend after weekend she came and she said, they just keep winning. She, said, <laughs> you know, she was so tired of having to go to these soccer games. But the team just kept winning weekend after weekend. It was so boring for her. There was nothing that could be done. She just had to keep taking her kids to these soccer games because they kept winning. And that's sort of how Master is with us. Well, you know, they just, she just keeps having a good time, so I guess I have to go with her one more time. We just have to live through this once more. I was, I'll say this at the last and take a break. Hunter Black, um, many of you may remember Hunter, that he and all his wife now live um, in the Northwest again, but um, he raised, they raised five girls at Ananda Village, five children, all daughters as it turned out. And he said about the fourth one, he said the little girl was being potty trained and when children are being potty trained, you have to give them lots of positive reinforcement and they don't have necessarily an aversive sense to what they have filled the potty little bowl with. So, you know, they'll bring the little potty bowl out so that everybody can admire it. And, you know, he was at the breakfast table when the little child came out with the potty bowl. And after he praised the child for using the little potty bowl, he turned to his wife and said, oh, dear, are we here again? (laughs) You know, and that's, Master can say that. Oh, dear, are we here again? You know, that here we are with one more of my beloved children just going through this phase of life that just has to be gone through. But we are. And with our whole hearts, we'll help them through it. You know, it, it, I shared also on the Sunday, you may remember, when I talked about how in that very complicated way, my own inability to find mercy in the universe when I needed it was because of my lack of mercy toward others. You know, the Master doesn't suffer from that. And, and it's, it's, I was, I had a seclusion once, I've shared this with you, but it's worth repeating. I had a seclusion once, and it was a really nice seclusion. I think I was at what they call Swami's Dome at the seclusion retreat. That was where I was staying, you know, many years ago, after we lived here, but still many years ago. It was a very nice seclusion. I was really enjoying myself there. But I was having a little, I was sort of, praying for people lots of times. And I wasn't sort of, I kind of was at an impasse. And I thought, instead of like trying to send so much energy out, maybe I should just concentrate more on communing. So I was trying to meditate on, you know, the feeling of God's presence with me. I became intensely aware of the fact that there was a force within me that was holding that, well, holding that grace at bay. You know, this is, this is John, St. John in the Bible as many as received him. To them gave he the power. You think, well, of course I'll receive him. Why would I not? You know, you can't imagine why that would be an obstacle. But it was very interesting to me because I could feel it right in my heart and I could feel this outward pushing energy that was like creating a shield. And when I reflected on it, as, as near as I could tell, it was all the anger, all the disappointment, all the jealousy, all the hurt that I was holding on to, everything that, had ever happened, 
I mean, it wasn't like I had this fantastic super conscious experience, but it was just an intu- intuition. Everything that had ever happened that caused me to close my heart a little bit. And also that caused me to hold on. You know, we, it's easy for us to say, oh, I forgive you, but it's not so easy to do it. And, you know, and it's, it's easy for us to say, you know, I, I don't want to be angry about this anymore, but it's amazing how we enjoy it. It's the only word I can use. We enjoy it. You know, I, I became conscious of how much I, I wanted, <laughs> I still wanted somebody to apologize to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I just didn't want to be the one who was going to have to let go. I wanted somebody to come and tell me, oh, you were right, they really did treat you badly. You know, you poor thing. Kind of, I, it wasn't a joke. But what was so interesting to me was how all of those, to put it more subtly, all of those dissonant vibrations that I, was, that I had in my heart created a counter wave that made it impossible for the grace of God to come through. And that before I was going to be able to receive the grace of God, I had to attune myself to the grace of God. And, and all of those dissonances were preventing that from happening. You know, and that's where you throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord and just understand, you've been here, sir. You, you've lived through this. How do I let go? And, and make that such a, a, a fearless intimacy. Just fearless. There's, there's no issue that you could be dealing with that is outside of the master's experience, outside of his interest, and outside of his ability to dissolve. It's all about our receptivity to it. Does that make sense? Any comments or questions or thoughts about that before we take a break? Before you found Swami, and you said that um, you didn't understand everything I didn't was understand confusing. How everybody had, had you had you like given up or were you still trying? Oh, I was functioning by anybody's standard. I was functioning quite fine. In but I mean, like, did you? I, I I know you weren't. I don't I don't mean it that way that you were, you know, right. just lying in bed or anything. But I mean, were you were you still trying to find something that? would have meaning? Did you believe it? Or did you just somehow know? I I met Swami when I was 22 and I was given a book by Swami Kriyananda when I was, uh, Vivekananda when I was 18. Uh So I was already conscious of these teachings and I already knew that Sanatana Dharma and the path of self-realization was there. This is just before I met Swami. But I was still, um, I think the word is desperate. I was, I was in a, you know, the, is it, uh, was it Thoreau who said, was it Emerson or Thoreau, whichever one said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. That was a phrase that somehow from my youth I always knew. And that was 100% of who I was. Everything apparently was just fine, but I was absolutely desperate inside because now I was nearly a grown-up. You know, before I'd just been a child and it was going to supposed to work out when I grew up. Now, effectively, I was a grown-up, and it was just as much of an, you know, an empty bubble as it had ever been. And I had, and even though I had the spiritual teaching, still I had no idea what I was going to do. So, I hadn't given up in the sense that I was too young to have given up. 
But I was desperate for an answer, absolutely desperate to just... And because of my samskars, I wanted to go crazy. That was what I wanted to do because I thought I just couldn't stand it. But I couldn't because I was too practical. I mean, I literally stood in my window and looked out at the backyard of this apartment where we were living and thought, oh, a nervous breakdown. You know, they'll just take me to the hospital. I'll be there for a long time. They'll give me drugs. I'll have to get off the drugs. Then I'll be really tired, and then it'll cost a lot of money, and then I'll come back, and I'll be standing looking out this window feeling exactly as I feel. And it's just, it's not going to work. That was it. It just wasn't going to work. And I thought about drug addiction, but I knew drug addicts, and they weren't very happy. <laughs> You know, I didn't think about drinking because drinking was no part of my life. But I thought about being a drug addict, but that didn't really look like it worked very well. And I thought about suicide, but that pretty much seemed a waste of time too. You know, so it was just like I was praying. I didn't know. I didn't really know I was praying because I, I was a philosopher more than a devotee at that point. But I was really praying. I was desperately praying. And not long after, Swami walked into my life. And you know, and I just. I wrote recently, there was an overwhelming simplicity to meeting him. He has what I want. And because I never thought about the atom, I only really thought about myself, he had what I wanted. And beginning, middle, end of story. You know, somebody on this whole crazy world actually had what I wanted. First time I'd ever seen it. Yeah, Yeah, I guess somebody else might have gone out and bought a car or or gone back to school and gotten to think, oh, if I get a better job, then I'll feel happy, and just gone on that that way, but you just already knew. Well, that was the level of vairagya that I was born with. Vairagya means disinclination. I was born with that, and I I never, I could never go there, you know. And I was born into a family that was very unmaterialistic. They were intellectual, and that was uh, an attachment that I had strongly. But they were really not materialistic. There was never any illusion in my house. We were comfortable, but there was never, you know, everything in my house was repaired with duct tape. I mean, you know, when David actually threw something away and bought a new one instead of fixing it with duct tape, I was just shocked. (laughs) And the man I was married to at the beginning, the first time, I kid you not, we were together for five years. We bought one used brass plant hanger for $4 at a flea market. And that was the only non-utilitarian purchase we ever made. So it's like, it's just not a world that I lived in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we weren't poor, but we were just like, you know, he was, he was just an extension of the family I grew up in, and it was just not there to happen. But that was my good karma, but I want to keep my good karma. Yeah. So that's why I was, that whole cycle that I was talking about and that's when, that's when I was thinking in Mexico, I, we don't live in the same planet these people live in. And that's when David turned to me and says, we never have. And then I realized, oh, that's right, I never really have. Vibrationally, I never have. I remember being 13 and um, being really skinny and undeveloped at an age when all the girls were beginning to develop. And I was at a, a party in somebody's basement. You know, and there were music records playing and people were dancing and I was sitting against the wall because nobody ever looked at me. And I actually remember sitting there. I, you know, strange things happen to us even when we're young because our souls are fully present. I remember sitting in that room, you know, on a certain level feeling utterly miserable because I was just, it, it was impossible for me to get any of those 
cute boys interested in me. I mean, it was just like out of the question. Um, And I had this consciousness that the reason nobody even saw me in that room was because I just wasn't like anybody in that room. And it it was like sort of a little bit of a, a temptation, but it was no temptation. You could become like them. Would you like that? No. You know. And then it wasn't like a big moment when I said I'd rather be lonely or anything like that, but it was just an awareness without having any words for it that I was on a different wavelength. It wasn't even judgmental. It was just, I'm on a different wavelength. These people can't see me because I, I don't exist. And that was, you know, watching, what are they doing? You know, why are they, why are, do they all find it so easy? And I find it just hopeless and impossible. And that was when I realized I'm different. And there was a choice, but I never was even tempted. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. I'll stay who I am. Be Rajasa. In a way, um, the, the model of the life that you're describing mm-hmm. might not be very um, attractive to some of <laughs> us who, who still have you know, some yeah, interest that. in the world. But I, I remember that Swamiji, uh-huh. who, who had much the same kind of childhood, yeah. but he kind of spent a few months or a year or something, year. experimenting right. with, well, maybe I could do it. Let's right. see how it works out. Yeah, at his, uh, the, great, the grand popularity game when he was a senior at Scarsdale High School, aided by his brother who was very popular, he entered into that world, did it for a year, and then realized, oh, that's what it's about. No, I'm not interested. And I want to say, on the other hand, you could be entirely different. I'll use Kirtani as an example or Durga as an example. Great saints, both of them. Their approach was completely different. They just simply, with these dear and wonderful pure hearts, just embraced everyone. You know, Durga's, Durga lived in a family. She's not in the room, so I don't, I'm not embarrassing her by saying this, but she lived in a family where her father's profession, every two years the family would move. He was high up in some corporation where every two years they would move. And I remember her just saying to me, oh, she'd have to start a new school. And she would sort of feel, oh, like this. But then she would know that within a few days she'd have lots of friends. And invariably, within a few days, she had lots of friends. I mean, when she was telling me this, I thought, oh, my God. I couldn't get friends, you know, after years of trying. But because she responded to not being part of this world by just embracing the whole thing. And Kirtani the same way, you know, just... There was no self. And I was intensely self-preoccupied. And both of them were just... It, you know, intensely non-self-preoccupied. So there's a completely other way you can take it. You can be de- de- completely detached and become completely um, embracing of it all because what do you need from it? Do you know? Just live in other people's worlds and give them your heart. What do you need from it? It's very important to realize that we don't all have to go about this the same way. The, that's why the point I said is, you know, married, unmarried, I just don't want to be act from compulsion. I think all through my childhood I was compelled. I was compelled by fear, anxiety, you know, uh, self-preoccupation, mental concepts, you know, I just couldn't. It took me years of the spiritual path to just be able to be, even slightly. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah. But whatever it is, Master has been through it. And whoever you are, it's okay.
you're not going to stay there. It's not okay in the sense of, oh, yes, I'm perfect just the way I am. Oh, heavens no. <laughs> Swami says he goes, he was, he was somewhere where some speaker was saying they used to have all these big group things. Everyone just love yourself. Just put your arms around you and hug yourself. He said, why should you love yourself? There's a great deal about you that's quite unlovable. <laughs> so it's just, just all depends on your perspective. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. I had two good questions during the break, which I refused to answer during the break, so let's try it. The first one was, what was the first one? Oh, why do we hold on? Why do we hold on to anger, resentment, and so on, when it seems like such a bad idea? It's a very odd, it's a very odd fact that we do. It seems so obvious that we wouldn't want to, but um, I think we hold on to it from habit. We hold on to it from not really being comfortable in a higher vibration. You know, we, we rise to a higher vibration when we are in that vibration. When I was watching some of those people who were drinking to have fun and so on, I mean, they're comfortable in that vibration. I'm very uncomfortable in that vibration, and they're quite comfortable in it. It was interesting, I was watching, you know, just, oh, we had this uh, uh, condominium on the third floor, and sometimes I'd look out at the ocean, and sometimes people would walk by. And You can tell so much about people by their, by their gait, by their posture. You know, we just express our vibration all the time. And so, um, and we're not comfortable in other vibrations. You know, some people come into this temple and they absolutely feel at home and love it. Others walk in and walk out. Some people hear Swamiji's music and think it's just glorious. Others hear it and think it is the dullest, most uninteresting thing they've ever heard because they're just not on that vibration. It's just not, it's not their reality. When we moved into our apartment complex, we were talking about this, you know, not too long ago. And, you know, they were just... They were, the, the apartments were, had dark carpet, dark curtains, and then people would live in them and then bring in dark furniture and close the curtains. You know? And it was just like, they were, they were comfortable. That was the vibration that was comfortable to them. So a kind of, whatever vibration we're comfortable in, that's what we live in. That's why one of the best ways to overcome that is not by wrestling with those things directly, but by constantly bringing yourself into a higher vibration. Because then when you really have a higher vibration, you will realize that what passed for happiness really wasn't. It just seemed like it was. I mean, that's why in the course of um, working with Ananda over many years, especially when we very first started here, Chidambar was here, so I look at him because we remember Sarah was here. We, we had to try to create for people a way of being that they didn't even know about. How to go to a party and have fun without drinking. You know, I've shared with you when, uh, when we were working on the political process of trying to make Ananda Village a California city, and I was in the vanguard of that with a couple of other women, and we made friends with some of the local people. And this man invited us to his Christmas party. He was a civil engineer, and he was, very, he was a very nice man. He was very well-placed in the county, and his Christmas party at his office was a big event every year, and now we were part of his world, so he invited us. And we were trying to you know, make things happen. So we went. We went to this party. It was like from three to six or something like that. And we walked in. It was a nice room. He'd sort of arranged, you know, and there was some food on the table. And there was, it became clear to me that nothing was going to happen. There was a piano, but it was like pushed in the corner, turned to the wall. And I gradually realized that we were just going to drink. And that as we drank, not me, of course, because I wasn't going to, but everybody was going to drink. 
And as everybody got a little more drunker, we would just think we were having fun. There was, and and this, this man was a very nice man, but he didn't have any idea how to be creative and have good, clean fun. You know, people in this country used to know how to do it. We don't know how to do it at all anymore. We just intoxicate ourselves or turn on the television. Whereas Ananda gets together and just does all these, you know, things that people can dismiss as childlike. But, yeah. <laughs> but you, you kind of get in a different vibration and you're having such a good time. So the same with the meannesses of the heart. We just practice not being that way. And that becomes so enjoyable that when we fall back into this sort of self-centered smallness, we're not comfortable in that vibration anymore. And that's what actually really dissolves it. And, you know, you find yourself rehashing the old arguments. And for myself, I just realized, I, I mean, everybody has their own karma. For me, I like being right. That's just it. I like being right. I'm usually right. Although David said, not as often as you think you are. <laughs> Which I have not forgotten. <laughs> but I still like to be right. And so I, even though when I know that I'm wrong, I will change in an instant. I still prefer being right. And especially when somebody has mistreated me. Karmically, over incarnations. And that's for me. I mean, you have to answer it for yourself. I just realized I just still wanted to be right. And I wanted somebody to come up and tell me that you were mistreated, you were right, they were wrong. That's what I was holding on to. Was, am. You have to ask yourself what your base issue is. What is it that you're holding on to? What vibration are you clinging to? And I liked it. That's all I can say. I just liked it. I got really mad at a lot of things over many incarnations, and I just wasn't ready to give in. I mean, you find that just in your own little life, you know? You have a little tiff with somebody that you really care about, somebody who's close to you in your life, and you just want them to apologize first. You know, and at some point you finally realize, this doesn't matter, just let it go. But there's always that moment where you want them to apologize first. Forgive me. No, there doesn't always that moment, but sometimes there's that moment. You know, some people are egoless enough not to have that moment. <clears throat> Maybe someday I'll be one of them. You understand? So we, we just hold on for that reason, because we think it'll make us happy. You can't talk yourself out of it, and it's useless to talk yourself out of it. Try to talk to. That's what I was sort of saying. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not entertained by intellectual questions. That in the end, knowing the answer does not make any difference in your own vibration and your own level of consciousness. You've just spent a long time entertaining yourself, but in the end, your vibration is unchanged. I'm very interested in things that are, have practical value to change your vibration because that's all you're ever living with. That have, I'm very interested in things that have practical value to change your vibrations because that's all you're ever living in. Is the vibration of reality that you are. You know, your own will come to you. And the, the second question was, how do you know what things are your meant to do and not meant to do and if you're disinclined and you don't really believe in it but you're still doing it. Those are not, again, those are just like games that just spin endlessly. I remember somebody asked Swamiji once, how can you tell when something is your dharma to do? He said, well, if it needs to be done and you're the next man in line. (laughs) (laughs) That's about how much energy he gave it. (laughs) You know, we spend... Self-preoccupation 
is far more of a spiritual problem than just having some job. You know, we, we all imagine that we have this enormous external destiny. And the fact of the matter is, it really makes very little difference what we do. That's a really hard one to swallow. And that is not popular. The, you know, the popular thing is that we all have this some unique, absolute thing that we're supposed to do. And people just drive themselves crazy thinking they're supposed to find some unique something. No, they're supposed to do whatever they're doing with, as an exercise, and I've quoted this too, but this is out of Swami's Bhagavad Gita commentary, and this was another one of those really aha understandings for me. Life is about overcoming tamasic inclinations, rising to the level of at least being rajasic, then being rajasic sattvic, and then finally becoming sattvic. But we don't make ourselves sattvic. We are liberated from the need to be rajasic by simply ending that karma. But you can't make yourself sattvic. The very effort to make yourself sattvic inevitably makes you tamasic. Because you're spending so much time talking about the meaningless of everything that you're really just sitting on your duff, putting out no energy, serving nobody, and just allowing your fantasies about what spiritual life is to just rule you. You know, it, 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 uh, no master just sits there unless he's really in samadhi, like, like Lahiri, and then you don't have to ask the question. <laughs> it's like when Mozart was asked how to write symphonies and he advised the young composer will start with simpler pieces and, you know, then write duets and then quartets and then a little bit of this. And the man said, well, that's not how you started. You just wrote symphonies right away. Mozart said, but I didn't have to ask anyone. <laughs> I just knew how to do it. If you're in samadhi, none of this is going to be a question. But if you're not, and you're just spinning these questions, just forget about yourself and do whatever's in front of you. You know, you overcome your karma by just diving in and doing it. And if, it's your, if you've got it, it's yours to do. And you won't be done with it until you do it well. When Swamiji asked David and me to move back to Ayodhya after we got married and moved up to the seclusion retreat because it, it, all, the, all the places that people lived near the Crystal Hermitage at that time were for the monastics. And when the monastic order just began to um, decimate, we sort of went more into a householder stage, Swamiji's ended up there at the Crystal Hermitage with almost no one living anywhere near him. And so he invited some of us back. And he suggested that David and I put up this house, which is now the Crystal Hermitage guest house. Um, we didn't have any money. I said, sir, we don't have any money. He said, well, go out and teach classes, earn the money. You know, like, go out and teach classes and earn the money to build yourself a house. It's like, I couldn't get my mind around any of this. <laughs> of course, it was his way to get me out to teach, which is really what he was trying to do, because he knew the carrot of moving back to living next door to him would motivate me very highly to do a lot. It worked, worked beautifully. And, but then it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't understand how building a house was an okay thing for me to do because I wanted to be poor because then I could be sure I wasn't materialistic. You know, the mind's a little bit. And David had no such scruples. To him, everything was energy. He never, he never saw the world in all, never has seen the world in all these little pieces. He's always understood that it was always about energy. You get up in the morning, whatever's in front of you, you do it 100% with the best energy you have, and at the end of the day, you've done it. 
It really makes almost no difference what it is. And uh, I mean, I've and then now that Swami crystallized it for me in the Gita commentary, I recognize what he's always done, just instinctively. He's instinctively had an aversion for tamasic energy. He's worked as energetically as he can with as sattvic an attitude as he could muster. Perfect spiritual practice. Makes no difference what the issue is. So you have to build a house. You build a nice house, for heaven's sake, that's going to stand there for a really long time. I thought, I'll build a house and I'll build an ugly one. That'll solve it. You know, it's just like the mind. You just get these things going. Well, you know, I'm going to live here, but you know, I don't really want to have a, a house because if I think about a nice house and who cares about doorknobs, I don't care about doorknobs, you know, like. But somebody has to think about the doorknob because it's going to sit there for five generations. And if you put a hideous doorknob on there, everybody's going to think, oh, didn't these people have their eyes open when they bought this ugly doorknob? You know, just things like that. But it was tamasic. It was totally fear-driven. Absolutely, totally, 100% fear-driven. You know, I can't put my energy into this because that will mean I'm not spiritual. Just a mind game. Crazy mind game. Swami, of course, has built, you know, well, actually has three homes in the world. And they're all beautiful. They're tasteful. They're carefully done. He's shopped for beautiful things. He's paid a tremendous amount of attention. He's, he, you know, just did them beautifully. I, I haven't noticed that it's hurt him spiritually. <laughs> Here's a clue. You know, and that was, I mean, many of you have heard me say this. That's when David said to me about that house. Honey, if you're not going to help, please get out of the way. <laughs> and, you know, because he knew what he was supposed to do, and I didn't. But when he said that to me, I began to think there's something, we just, there's just something fundamentally off here. And, and that's the same thing of people who are going to school, holding jobs, earning money, making a success of their life, who spend all their time, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, maybe I shouldn't be doing it. That is very, very tamasic because it's utter self-preoccupation. If you're going to do it, do it well. And you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. Because when you do it badly, that doesn't mean you have to be a millionaire success at everything. Doing it badly means... To, to do it tamasically, whether that tamas is fear, laziness, self-preoccupation, selfishness. I mean, tamas can have lots of different forms because tamas is contractive. You can be very, very energetic, but you can be rajasic tamas. You can be just, it can be pulling you down. Raja, rajasic, rajotamo is better than nothing, but you, you don't get out of it until you do it well. Well, the best you can is to do it well. That's what I mean. It's not a question of whether you're success in the eyes of the world. It's whether you're a success against the obstacles that keep you from doing it well. And these, those can be very, very personal. It just doesn't matter. Stacey, you had a comment? Thank you. It just reminds me um, of the story you shared about Swamiji, or Master asking Swamiji, how do you feel? Yeah. Swamiji said, well, I've been feeling kind of down. And then all of a sudden, Master said, um, that's great. You know, just kind of shut it off, you know. He didn't, get, he didn't get past the word well. He oh, just okay. Said, well, right. <laughs> but Master knew what, what was coming after that. And all Master heard was well. Oh, good. You're feeling well. Right. Uh -huh. I think that's perfect. That helps me so much. It's like, who cares how I'm feeling? Just do it, you know. Just do it correctly do it. and do it with right consciousness. Right. I mean, you have to know how you feel. Right. Because suppressing your feelings 
is not the same as transcending them. But Yanamata said it perfectly. She said, people make too much of how they feel. She said, even granting that the right kind of feelings are desirable, just put aside how you feel and just do what you're supposed to do. And that is overcoming tamas. But sometimes you have to work with how you feel because if you merely suppress it, you haven't changed your essential vibration. You've just shifted. I mean, and yes, sometimes you have to discipline yourself. It's all very personal, you know. And that was the question also in answer to, you know, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing? Give it to Marilyn. Was um, uh, what you're really asking is how do you know God's will? Marilyn, ask your question first. Can you give an example of rajasic, Tamasic energy? Yeah. Uh Well, a person who works very, very hard, but all they want to do is accumulate money so that they can have tremendous wealth and sensual experiences. They're at least putting out energy, but it's tamasic to the extent that they're just gathering it all for themselves and wanting to enjoy it for themselves. Or gathering power so that he can have power over others. It's rajasic because some people who are like that are very energetic and work very hard. But it's tamasic because it's self-centered and what they're trying to do is just get for themselves. It's not sattvic in the sense that they're trying to create in order to give. So that's why nothing is ever, much in this world is a mixture of qualities. The master said that Hitler had a tremendous, it's in this book, master said Hitler had a tremendous amount of power and he, it was not clear whether Hitler would use that power for ill or for good. And when he went through Austria or Germany on his way to India, he tried to see Hitler in the hope of trying to influence him. But it's written in here, it wasn't possible. And Master said, well, the die is cast. You know, amazing, just an amazing thought. But that even such a man who was considered so evil, that even Master would try to see him, you know, had the karma for Master even put out that much energy toward him. Because everything, it's a, everything is a mixture of the gunas, the three gunas. And so you, that's why you kind of have to just work your way up slowly. Does that make sense? This, this path is so much more interesting than you first think it is. Because it's just so subtle. It, for a person who, has, uh, who enjoys subtlety, it's just fascinating. And for even if you don't enjoy the kind of, you know, intellectual... Um, verbal thing that, you know, is mother's milk to me. Um, what you can do with this path is you can, you can gradually, without even much of a, you don't have to have a big, sophisticated articulation of it, but you gradually come to realize, what do I want to say? I'm trying to say two things at the same time. One is how very simple the path really is, and at the same time how, how soft and spacious it is. That you, you just don't, you don't have to mold yourself into anybody else's form. That, that you can just gradually just, just come deeper and deeper into a deeper state of rest and, and exactly as God made you with a deep satisfaction that that's okay. What I'm really trying to say is this path really exists from the inside out. And it's not like you get it all straight and even all this talking that I love to do is not so that we get everything set up and then we all squeeze ourselves into it. It's so that we realize that, we, that it's all from the inside out and we just relax into it. 
You know how so, so, I've been listening to Swamiji say the same things for so long, and every once in a while I actually understand what he's saying. It's just so shocking to me. Certain images and ideas that he'll, he's said for years that I just never get, like the fact that everything in nature grows from a seed. How many times has he talked about everything in everything in the natural world has a center and it expands out from there? I finally got that that's us. You know, we have we have this little seed of divinity, and our sainthood is grown from the inside out. And so we just we just are a seed at a certain stage of development, and for us to become the mighty oak of spirituality that we will be that seed will just expand into that tree. It's not like we go and buy the tree, you know? I'm, my Halloween costume this year is the mighty oak I'm going to be, and we just put it on, you know, and sort of walk around in it like this. It's, we just can't do that. We can't just think it all out, and then what am I supposed to do? Okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. How am I supposed to behave? This is how I'm supposed to behave. How am I supposed to look when I get blessed at the Festival of Light? (laughs) I mean, I know it's a spontaneous thing to do that, but it makes me uneasy when I see people looking around and then spreading their arms. (laughs) It's just like everything that becomes, I'm looking around and figuring out how I'm supposed to be, really scares me. Because you can't become who you're supposed to be except by letting the little seed grow. And everything about this path is that. And when you finally really get that, you know, you just don't go outside and yell at the pansies because they're not blooming. It just doesn't work. They're just going to gradually just do that thing that they do. And then you look at them a month later and, wow, you have a whole pot of trailing pansies. And I mean, I've been watching the trees this year. I don't know. I mean, they do it in the night, you know. <laughs> there's just no leaves. And then bingo, there's leaves. I don't know when the moment was when they got leaves. And they get big leaves. There's a tree right outside my bedroom window and I can never catch the moment when it gets leaves on it. (laughs) But every year it does that. It just starts making those leaves because everything in nature grows from the inside out. And there's there's no system. Just it's it's its own it's the nature of the tree to put out leaves. It's very subtle. It's very subtle, but when you finally get it, it's so freeing. It's just freeing beyond imagination of expectancy. I spent so many years just so tense. You know, I just, oh, and how many incarnations prior to that? That's why you hear me talk about the same themes over and over again. We teach what we know. <laughs> Master knows the whole path. I just know little tiny pieces of it. But you know, your question, which I do want to answer, where you we're asking, you know, what are you supposed to be doing? The really question to that is, how do I know what, what God's will is? And the only way you actually know that is by adding into your life experiences that give you a sense of what it's like to be in tune. And you get a sense of what it's like to be in tune, and then gradually you have a point of reference. And you can begin to figure out what part of your life is similar to that sense of being in tune with the Spirit and what part isn't. And then it's not an idea. But it's also, it's like, when during my day do I feel that inspiration and when do I not? And then you start asking yourself, is it the circumstances I'm in or is it the consciousness I'm bringing? And if you find yourself, because you know, we just don't have that much freedom. It, I mean, if you're independently wealthy and can choose your environment or are karmically free and can choose your circumstances, I mean, that's one thing. 
But if that isn't your condition, which it's almost nobody's condition, or if sincerely we have to say, I like going to school, I like having this job, I enjoy getting up, I need a schedule in my life, I, I have to have a place to go, these are interesting people, I don't get along here, I feel like I have something to learn. You know, we just have to honestly say, I'm doing things that are working for me. They don't have to look like anybody else's reality. That's why I was saying my life is weird in that respect. It's not, it's not the life that most people live. Most people act out their lives on a more varied stage than my life has been acted out on. So the question is not, what should I do? The question is, am I putting out the best energy I can? Am I living at my full potential? Am I trying at all times to be at least rajasic? and not tamasic. And then you, have, then you adjust your circumstances only after you've thought it through from that angle. It's not an abstract question. It's, what am I doing with what I have? All circumstances in life are neutral. It only depends on how we respond to them. Sometimes circumstances have to be changed, but oftentimes we're trapped. Do you know? You marry someone and you have two children, and they have to be raised. It doesn't really make a lot of difference whether you like it or not. You've committed yourself. You're, in the example of yourself, who asked this question and many others, you managed to come to America because of certain work visas. And because you're in America, all these other things are possible to you, but that it all depends on those work visas. So, you know, certain things are just not up for discussion yet. And as long as they aren't up for discussion, I remember one man in our congregation, you know, brought me his green card. Like, <laughs> you know, finally I have my green card. And then all of a sudden... Questions can be, options can be considered that were just out of the question for a decade. You know, you know, these are all just common sense answers. But how you know what God wants of you is by learning to understand what attunement feels like. And the first way you learn that is you go places where attunement is easier to feel. Sunday services, kirtans, classes, you do things that awaken that vibration in you and then you be just, but it's not easy. It's not like, oh, now I know, heavens know. We're always, it's always a very delicate line. And it's usually better to move slowly instead of hurling yourself off a cliff. You know, stand at the edge and look, sort of see a little. Okay, any questions or thoughts or comments about anything? Okay, end of story. We only did one, but I counted out and counted the rest of the classes and I had the margin to do that. We're going to do, I guess we had, I think we had five more classes when we came in tonight. So we have four more classes on this book, which is through the end of May. Then we're going to go back to the other. I think I told you all that. Okay. I was going back to the Spiritual Warrior, which was the discipleship course, because I'd like to finish that. I've taught the beginning of that course over the course of years. I've never actually finished that course in any context. On several different occasions over the years, I have gotten partway into it and never finished it. Just as a matter of principle, I'd like to finish it at least once. So we will. Over the summer, we'll finish it. Okay, great souls. That was fun. Always fun. It's next week. Next week, Swamiji comes, but he comes on Wednesday, so we will have Tuesday class. Yeah. But he'll, he'll just be here for a couple of days to rest before he goes up to the board.